Welcome to the Resume Storyteller, bringing you interviews with industry experts, regular folks who tested the job search waters and succeeded, and strategies to tell your story and land you job interviews. Here's your host, Virginia Franco. Hi, folks. I have with me today industry development coach Susanna Katzman, who is passionate about supporting the development of emerging leaders by guiding her clients to identify their goals and achieve meaningful and sustainable changes in both their mindset and their behavior. She holds a master's in education and human development and psychology from the Harvard Graduate School of Education, is trained in immunity to change facilitation, and is also certified as a talent optimization consultant by Predictive Index. In addition to her private practice, Susanna supports clients through both Minds at Work and MetaView and teaches a course called Essential Management Skills for Emerging Leaders at the Harvard Division of Continuing Education Professional Development Program. Susanna, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Virginia. It's my pleasure to be here. I'd love to hear more about your you know, how, how you came to this role, because most of us don't grow up saying, I want to coach emerging leaders. That's not something we're trying to <laughs> as a thing when we're little. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm happy to share my story. So the pivotal point in my career that led me to do what I do now happened about 10 years ago when I was overseeing an information services department. And I realized that I was much more interested in people systems than in information systems. <laughs> I was working at Harvard at the time. And so I pursued that interest by getting my master's in human development psychology at the Harvard Graduate School of Education mm-hmm. and doing an internship at Harvard Center for Workplace Development because, as you probably know, a degree alone is not enough to change careers. No, No, it's not. Yeah. And so I was very lucky. My internship mentor was Julie Jungalwala, formerly Wilson, and she opened so many doors for me. That internship led to my very first job in organizational development on the Harvard Longwood campus Mm -hmm. with Linda Miklas. I was truly lucky to have such wonderful mentors. And Linda also had tremendous influence on me and provided just unwavering support with my career aspirations. And she still does, um, even though we no longer work together on the same team. And a little over two years ago, I branched out on my own to start my leadership development facilitation and coaching practice. And my dog was barking. I had to shut the door on that. Um, so I love that you got to, you did sort of what I did, where you you interned and you got to really test the waters before sort of going out on your own. Exactly. I've seen that time and time again as a way to do a successful career change. Uh, so I read your article, I don't know when you published it, but it was called Higher Aspirations for Performance Development. And I'd love to sort of spend some time writing about that article because I really felt like it, some of the messaging in that would resonate with my audience. Um, 
You talk a lot about the difference between the socialized mind and the self-authoring mind. Uh, can you define what those two what, what, what those two phrases mean, and what are the differences between the two? Yes, I would be happy to, Virginia. And before I do that, I would like to share how I came upon the theory that talks okay. about socialized mind and self-authoring mind and some other concepts that are informing my leadership development work. Great. Yeah. So you know how there are courses where we learn a lot and then there are courses that fundamentally change and challenge our worldview. Mm -hmm. So for me, adult development course that I took with Bob Keegan when I was working on my master's degree was such a course. And it made me understand myself, the world and other people in it in a fundamentally different way. I find Keegan's adult development theory to be so hopeful. It says that we have the potential within us to continually grow and evolve. And that this growth and evolution is available to all of us. And it doesn't stop at any particular point in time. Oh, that is hopeful. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And the potential for us to transcend our current limitations is always there. The potential for us to undergo yet another transformation is always there. And I was particularly taken with the negantropy aspect of the adult development theory. What which is that? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I said when I first heard about it. Um so it, it means that while everything in the universe succumbs to entropy and becomes more disorderly over time, our minds have the potential to become more orderly, more organized over time. So even though everything is becoming disorderly, our minds actually order it? Our minds have the potential potential to become more orderly in the way they think and take in and process information. Okay. Yeah. So just to give you an analogy, uh, for example, while my physical vision will likely be deteriorating in coming decades, my mm -hmm. inner vision, the way I perceive and experience things has the potential to get ever sharper and ever clearer over time. Wow. I never thought of that that way. I know. It's kind of paradigm shifting. So our, our, our vision will likely be fine, but our inner vision will become crisp. It has the potential okay. to... Yes, um, it's not going to happen for everyone. It's not going to happen for those that it happens to on the same time frame, but there is always that potential. Okay. So to make this theory more concrete, there are five stages of adult development and each stage both contains within it the previous stage and transcends it. So basically the higher the stage, or it is also called order of mind or order of consciousness, mm -hmm. the broader the perspective that one can take and the higher the stage, the more one can take responsibility for. 
So the socialized mind is the third order of consciousness and the self-authoring mind is the fourth order of consciousness. So the self-authoring builds on socializing, socialized? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, one first has to be fully socialized in order to begin developing self-authoring capacity. Okay. Yeah. And what's interesting is that most of the adult population is either at one of those or somewhere in between those two orders, with many of us transitioning from socialized to self-authoring stage, which is a process that can take decades. So statistically, Virginia, given our age, um, you and I are probably somewhere in between those two stages. When you're a baby, you start at stage one, or does it start the minute you turn, you know, as a young adult? Yeah, so usually um, the stages that precede socialized stage are like kids and teenagers and the way mm-hmm. they perceive the world and themselves in it. And um, the socialization usually happens in late teens or early 20s. And this is usually when you know, parents and other adults around the teenager can kind of collectively breathe a sigh of relief and say, okay, we can trust this young person to make good choices. We don't have to be on top of them, um, checking on them and making sure they're doing the right thing because they have, through the process of socialization, internalized what is a good choice, what is a responsible action, and so forth. So they've become socialized. Okay, so people that are Gen Xers and millennials, or not Gen Xers, millennials, yeah, millennials and Gen Xers are somewhere between self-authoring and um, the other one, socialized? Yeah, so it varies a lot, actually, Virginia. Um, Statistically, you'd probably find some pre-socialized ones, um, some of the ones that are not fully socialized and they need, um, for example, in the workplace, close supervision. Um, and then you would find quite a few of them that are fully socialized and maybe some beginning to develop self-authoring okay. capacity. So, yeah, so tell me, so yeah, there's, and there's a, I hear you saying that there's a spectrum of people fall somewhere on the spectrum, which makes sense. So, what, so someone who is self-authoring means what? Yeah, so self-authoring means that they no longer look to others for direction or validation or approval. And that direction, validation, and approval is critically important for socialized mind. But with self-authoring, people who are more self-authoring, they're well aware of what others think and expect and of the societal norms And all of that is subordinated to the internal seat of judgment that the self-authoring mind relies on for guidance. So people at the self-authoring stage can take responsibility for their thoughts, feelings, and actions, and they're not very much affected by external influences. Again, Mm -hmm. 
aware of what's going on outside of them and what others think about them. But not influenced. No, not really. And um and then socialized heavily relies on the external influence. Oh yes. Yeah, they do. They need that um they need indications from others to know who they are and how they're doing and how they're performing. And so um you know, with among other things, that self-authoring capacity makes it easier to make decisions more independently, and it enables people to operate with greater ease in the VUCA world. And VUCA stands for volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, which is pretty much what we've got today, both yeah, in and out an of the workplace. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, just my so my next question I, that I had written out, I think now that I understand that one builds on the other won't, won't make sense. But initially I was thinking, well, does it a situation where adopting a socialized mindset may be preferable um, in, a, in a career setting? Um, but I wonder now if you've already gone beyond that, if it's even possible to... Yeah, I think if you have truly transcended socialized mind and you have a good degree of self-authoring capacity, that internal knowing, that internal compass, um, it, uh, it would be very difficult to adopt the socialized mind, no matter how much pressure or benefit there is to doing so. It's like asking a butterfly to go back to the form. Yeah, exactly. While in chrysalis. Um, And in my article, High Aspirations for Performance Development, I talk about how typical performance development processes encourage a socialized mind by recognizing and rewarding compliance and and Mm -hmm. adherence to externally imposed expectations. So on some level, many organizations want employees to operate at a socialized level and not exhibit too much independent thinking, initiative, and otherwise, you know, disrupt the status quo. Right. You know, I'm thinking of military, super regulated industries, things like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, well, it varies. It depends, actually, but uh, on the whole, that analogy would hold true. And at the same time, organizations recognize um, that they very much need that original thinking and initiative and disruption in order to stay competitive. And it's a very interesting tension that I attempted to speak to in my article. You can eat it too. They want you to comply, but they want you to be independent. Yes. So, in terms of the self-offering mindset, how does that conflict with the people? The people that are well advanced in in they've really progressed on, into this onto the self-authoring phase or stage. Do they really struggle in these 
more top-down, I guess, um, organizations where disrupting the status quo is huge and, and can really ruffle a lot of feathers. Yeah. Yeah, that can happen. And if one is like truly, fully self-authoring, um, they probably don't struggle. They probably either take charge or they leave such an organization and find or create a situation for themselves where they can exercise their self-authoring capacity. Okay. They either they go independent. That's interesting. Uh, some of them do, but you you will find plenty of um, fully self-authoring people within organizations and thriving. Do you find that or do you have any data around whether people that are fully self-authoring tend to be more independent contractors or business owners? That's such an interesting question. I don't, I don't have the data. What I do know is that Self-authoring capacity is absolutely essential nowadays to lead organizations and to lead, even if you're not the head of organization, but like departments and you need some self-authoring capacity to lead a team and even yourself these days, regardless of where you are. Yeah. And so I would imagine people that are sort of right there in the middle, what you said are, are a lot of people that they would do quite well in matrix complex corporations where there are um, more standards and regulations because they can they can go and think for themselves at some levels, but they are still very influenced by what others think. Yeah, it's it's a really fascinating transition, and the way you can tell um, whether someone is getting more self-authoring is that you see them really taking charge of their careers, uh, regardless of where they are. Because um, even, for example, there can be a lot of pressure coming from cultural expectations or one's family to choose a mm-hmm. particular career path. Um, I'm sure you've heard many stories. Yes. And, yeah. And a person who's operating at socialized order of consciousness um, is likely to follow that and to do their very best to meet those external expectations, you know, to get that validation and approval. and. One actually doesn't have to be fully self-authoring to resist that pressure. And yet it does take some self-authoring capacity to say to one's family, like, hey, you know what? I know I'm not gonna study this. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, you wanted me to go to medical school or law school. Well, I'm interested in sociology or some variation of that. Right, right. Interesting. Well, so I have a question for you. I saw in during the 2008 financial recession, and then I'm seeing it now in COVID, just a huge increase in people calling me. And, and I'm seeing people talk about it on LinkedIn where they are saying, I, this pandemic made me realize that I need to make a change. And they are taking control of their careers. Um, and I'm wondering if points of crises tend to lead to elevation and you know moving from one stage to the other it's a kind of propel it 
Absolutely. Yes, there is nothing like a life-changing event or a change in circumstances that kind of puts everything upside down Mm -hmm. to make one really think about, okay, what is it that I can do to improve my situation? Or what is it that I really want out of life? And so forth. So it puts people in a mindset of taking more responsibility for themselves and how they operate in the world. And that is very much in line with self-authoring. Interesting. Uh, So in your article, we touched about this a little bit, but um, you you talk about how job descriptions call for independent decision-making, but that performance appraisals often lag behind in measuring this and rewarding someone who's self-authoring. So what they ask for and then what they, you know, base your bonus and your promotions on is uh, is different. Um, why do you think that there is a disconnect between what hiring managers say they want and then what they reward? Yeah, that's a great question, Virginia. And I think that there are a few pieces to this disconnect. Uh, one piece is that many middle managers are charged with managing risk while many senior leaders expect the workforce to take some risks in the name of innovation, because that's what's going to help the organization stay competitive. So that's one. The the, the, the the middle management tiers are charged with controlling the risk where where senior leadership is demanding a larger larger risk-taking with the idea that the, you know, for the greater ROI? Yes, exactly. This is a fairly typical situation. And the good news is that this uh, dilemma of middle managers is actually fairly straightforward to address. And to give an example, as a member of the instructor team in the Harvard Division of Continuing Education Professional Mm -hmm. Development Program, the one that you mentioned in my introduction, Essential Management Skills for Emerging Leaders, I coach and guide program participants on how to go about taking calculated risks in a way that benefits both their career development and organizational strategic priorities. Okay. So this kind of risk-taking is a stretch uh, and it can definitely be learned. I know for sure because by the end of this 10-week program, many participants make significant progress in their chosen initiative, which involves taking a risk, and most raise their profile within their organization by following a process that helps them move forward in a way that is both structured and innovative and aligned with the employer's interests. So it's a win-win risk. Yep, exactly. It can be done. And another piece of disconnect um, that you mentioned is that Socialized behavior is easier to manage and to measure because mm-hmm. if you think about it, it's very straightforward to assess how well yeah. one is adhering to expectations. <laughs> here's the procedure, here's the goal you set, did you do it? 
Exactly. Wow. Yeah, no, good point. Yeah. And self-authoring behavior may not follow expectations and yet it can yield superior outcomes. So assessing the performance based on expectations is going to miss some brilliant contributions that come when employee exercises self-authoring. And that's not to say that every self-authoring employee is going to deliver every time. That's no, not the point it's here. A, it's a risk. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. a, it's a risk that don't always work out, right? Exactly. And there will be failures, like you said, and hopefully some very rich learning extracted from those failures. And if performance is measured only by how well employees stick to predetermined plans and expectations, that potentially transformational learning could get overlooked. Interesting. So how do you recommend someone go about making a calculated risk? Do you feel like they need to get buy-in first or proceed well, you know, quietly and take it from there. Yeah, I would recommend identifying some key stakeholders mm-hmm. and getting their buy-in um, because, you know, we don't operate in a vacuum no. if we're part of an organization. Right, and, right. you know, maybe not initially, but at some point we're going to need support, we're going to need resources, and it's good to lay the groundwork for that early on and also to understand, you know, who is with you, who could potentially be brought along later and who is just not going to, you know, support this. Interesting. I think I'm very grateful that I have my own business because when I fail, I I don't hurt anyone about myself. (laughs) Yep. That is one of the advantages. And, um, Just to mention one more piece that's related to the disconnect that you pinpointed so well. So a third piece um, that I see as part of the disconnect is sometimes a manager is operating from socialized order of mind, and that would make it harder for them to recognize the value of a self-authoring team member and what they're bringing to the table just because it's not always going to look like what that socialized manager has internalized as expected performance. No, that makes sense. And to your point, people are operating at different levels. So if you're higher than your manager, if you've progressed that, that that there's definitely a disconnect with that. And I wonder if that's a lot of what drives, um, discontent between managers and employees? It can be in some cases. And I also want to say that even if you have, say, a fully self-authoring manager and a fully self-authoring employee, there's no guarantee that they're going to see eye to eye. Oh, really? That's too bad. (laughs) (laughs) No, and neither is true for socialized. It's much more nuanced than that. Um, But I can see your point. And I agree that if manager is, say, fully socialized and expects adherence to what's been laid out before and they have um, an employee who is either fully self-authoring or is well on their way to self-authoring, that could result in some interesting tension. Interesting. Well, so what 
how have you been a job seeker or maybe someone who's looking to get to the next level through a promotion? How should they, how can they show that they are holding value and, you know, becoming more independent thanks to, you know, employing a self-authoring mindset? Yeah, I'm appreciating that question. And I think that whatever self-authoring capacity that job seeker or an employee seeking a promotion has will come through during the interviewing process, during the process of negotiating that promotion. Yeah, because like once you have that self-authoring capacity, you can't really tuck it away. Um, And if one is just beginning to make their way from socialized to self-authoring stage and they don't have a lot of confidence Mm -hmm. in their newly emerging self-authoring capacity, I would suggest leading those conversations with examples of taking a calculated risk and achieving a positive outcome as a result, both in terms of learning, what did I learn from this, from taking this risk, and in terms of work product, what was the outcome? And I would think that when you are, when you're looking to get promoted, the product is going to be probably more valuable to the case than here's what I learned. I think showing what you learned is is helpful when you're interviewing, but I don't know that if you're trying to make the case that you to your boss that you are ready for for that new VP title that they care about what you learned as much as what you've what you've done. Well, I you think would, or no. <laughs> um, I think the the answer is it depends. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that your reasoning is logical, and I think it depends on who that boss is and what they value, and what they see as um, needed competencies for that next step in employees' career. And so uh, some bosses may only care about the outcome and work product and other bosses may care about the learning as well. And I sure That's hope that right. they do. Learning, <laughs> and when I think of learning in terms of these are the skills that I've now acquired, mm-hmm. I think that there is value in that. I, I retract my original statement. <laughs> <laughs> You, um, and we talked about it during this call and in your article, you discussed the benefits of really embracing risk-taking. How does this apply to the self-authoring mindset? And and are there people that are self-authoring that are more nervous about risk-taking than others? Is Is that more of a personality component? Yeah, that's, um, that's a really interesting way of, putting it, Virginia, whether there is personality component, I'm going to try to get get at that nuance um, in my answer. But to answer your main question, yes, um, risk-taking is hugely important. Calculated risk-taking in a supportive environment promotes the development of self-authoring capacity. And self-authoring capacity is what enables us to take increasingly greater risks while feeling okay with potential outcomes that may not be what we expect. 
So you're saying taking baby steps leads to the ability to progress and then take even bigger risks. Exactly. Yes. So when a person is operating squarely from socialized order of mind, before they begin to develop self-authoring capacity, they're probably risk averse. Um, Remember that socialized mindset is very dependent on external validation, Mm -hmm. acceptance, and approval, uh, which means that stepping outside of the line means risking losing that validation acceptance yeah yeah and that can be just unbearable and Mm -hmm. so here is the nuance that gets at something other than personality but it it just um because i think personality does figure into this but i'm gonna bring it up in service of highlighting just how uh complex this whole thing can be um i want to mention that exception to that socialized mindset risk averse thing is that um, it depends on which norms the person is socialized to when it comes to risk taking. Yeah, if risk taking is what got them validation, acceptance and approval when they were growing up, um, they're going to have no trouble whatsoever being a risk taker. And uh, it's all about what we're socialized to, and we are all socialized to different norms, which goes back to... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, when I said that if a manager and employee is a both socialized, doesn't mean they're going to be agreeing. Mm-hmm. Um, so someone who was brought up in a convent is socialized to very different behavioral norms than someone socialized by a gang. And yet they're both socialized, both oh. are operating from the third order of consciousness. But the gang does approval for risk taking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And you know, the greater the self-authoring capacity, the less one is affected by external response to who they are or how they're performing. And as self-authoring capacity grows, so is the capacity for risk-taking, which goes back to something you mentioned earlier. Like the more you do it, the easier it gets and you take bigger and bigger risks. And failure isn't so scary anymore and neither is success, by the way. Um, And in general, external judgment and evaluation carries less and less significance as one learns to trust that inner knowing that is part of self-authoring capacity. So that's where people get to the point where they are taking risks for the greater good for their maybe own personal knowledge and more altruistic than that maybe they would be. You know, they're not afraid to to try a risk because at the end they might they might have learned something or something good could have come of it, even if the. Um, even if the risk-taking didn't prove hugely successful, there's some positive outcomes from it. Exactly. Interpreting that right? Okay. Yeah, Um, so... Yeah, the focus shifts from I've got to get it right to what can I learn? Right. Right. Yeah, what? Um, So, a lot of people are afraid to of being in danger, getting in trouble for trying something new. How 
how do you recommend an employee go about taking risks without it impacting their appraisal or their performance negatively? Can that happen? Yeah, yeah. And I can totally relate to getting dinged. That has happened to me at times. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the practices I recommend in my article is to set stretch goals alongside regular goals. Okay. And here's the key thing. For it to work, falling short of a stretch goal should have no bearing on performance rating or compensation whatsoever. And it should only be mined for the lessons learned from taking a risk. And, and another... I've seen companies do that where they you actually act in that higher level capacity. Of course, you don't get paid for it, but it's testing the waters, giving you the experience and, you know, it might be a win-win because then the company's going to settle and operating at that level without having to pay them for that for a short while. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, it's an investment of sorts. That's right. Yeah. And another effective way to take a risk without putting too much on the line is to mm -hmm. pilot new programs and services and products. Even if you think they're ready to be rolled out, you know, piloting a new offering is a much safer proposition than officially rolling yeah. something out. Yeah, um, test the waters first. Exactly. Even if you think it's totally ready, you know, if you frame it as a pilot, it's assumed to have shortcomings that will need to be addressed and organizational powers that be are just more likely to approve a pilot. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Linda Miklas, one of my mentors, whom I mentioned earlier, she frames work just as one big experiment. And viewed through that frame, risk-taking is part and parcel of that big experiment and becomes like not such a big deal. Hmm. Um, and so take a calculated risk, observe what happens, learn what you can be, what, what can be learned from it and uh, let the learnings inform next steps. I love that. So stretching regular goals and piloting new products and services to test the water. Yep. As a manager, whether you are have a direct team or maybe you work cross-functionally in a dotted line oversight capacity, is there a way to promote healthy risk-taking amongst team members? Yes, and I think it should be part of the job <laughs> responsibilities. Um, yeah, so managers, team leads, project leads can model risk-taking during brainstorming, planning, problem-solving sessions with their teams. They can ask uh, questions like, given the current constraints, what are mm -hmm. the options? Okay. What can we accomplish with what's available? And here is the key thing. Acknowledge all the ideas that are offered and don't evaluate them. Let don't the team them evaluate Just hear them. them and weigh them. Exactly. Like evaluation comes later. Right now, we're just getting everything on the table. And as a follow-up to that, um, to keep the focus on learning and not just on outcomes, uh, it's really important to keep asking, what are you learning? What are we learning? Especially when 
initiatives are not going according to plan mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes they're not. And That's true really important to encourage team members to reflect on this question of what are you learning as part of the ongoing performance management conversation. And here is another key thing. Um, So when managers share their learnings from challenges, they foster psychological safety, which is necessary for others to develop greater self-authoring capacity. So by acknowledging ideas, sharing your own learnings, you're making, you're you're nurturing a safe space for others to do the same? Yes, exactly. One of the most wonderful things that managers can do is say, I just had this epic fail that I want to tell you about. And I want to share what I've learned from it. And if there's anything else that you see as we could learn from it, please do say so. Love that. You know, I was thinking about what you said about focus on what you're learning. And I think as parents, you know, a lot of times we'll look at our kids when they've done dumb stuff and you say, okay, well, what'd you learn from it? Are you going to do it again? And (laughs) that's sort of what you're saying. Yeah. And as parents, we should, you know, as appropriate, um, share some of our learnings as well. So both at home and at work. Although I don't know how to do that. I'm pretty sure mine don't care about my learnings because I grew up in the 20th century. Um, well, Virginia, take a risk and right, right. share something with them and see what happens. Good point. Well, for answering all of my questions, or my brain just sort of was reeling with what you've talked, told me about. Um, you have a lot going on with your business. You work one-on-one, you work with groups. I'd love to hear about what is next for you now during the second part of, as we approach the midpoint of 2021. Yeah, it's just, um, it's actually, it doesn't sound exciting, but it's the most exciting thing for me. It's more of the same as far (laughs) as working um, with private coaching clients and working with organizations, helping them unlock the potential in the middle leaders through my facilitation and peer coaching programs. So I'm really excited about all of those opportunities. Um, and for those who listened to this episode, if this conversation sparked your interest, I invite you to grab my free guide. It's called Three Simple Steps to Greater Confidence in Yourself as a Leader. On bit- to that in the bio. Great. Yeah, wonderful. It's on bit.ly.com forward slash learn with Susana. And you can continue to receive my free leadership development content and resources right in your inbox. And you can also follow me on LinkedIn. I share my original content related to leadership development on LinkedIn. And if you are an organizational leader who is ready to take development of your middle leaders to the next level and would like to explore how I may serve you in this endeavor, please reach out to me. My email is susana at susanakatzman.com. And your website is susanakatzman.com as well, correct? Yep. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I've learned a lot. 
Thank you, Virginia. It was a pleasure. I have no doubt that you have really intrigued other people. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to The Resume Storyteller with Virginia Franco. To learn more about storytelling strategies to catch the eye of today's online skim hiring and decision makers, please visit www.virginiafrancoresumes.com. Com.